It is possible that over the holiday season, you will illustrate the idea of holiness with your dishes. Here's what I mean. Uh, Many families have special dishes, serving ware, that's set aside from the common stuff, and it's only pulled out and used for special occasions. Uh, your fine china, things like that, only gets pulled out at the holidays. And it's very valuable to you. And uh, it has emotional meaning. Perhaps there's some sort of family nostalgia associated with it as well. Uh, But that's not used just for common everyday stuff. Like if you walked into your kitchen and found someone from your family uh, using grandma's fine china to eat SpaghettiOs, you might be a little upset. Or you find your teenager uh, drinking Mountain Dew out of the fancy gravy boat. That's a big no-no. You shouldn't do that. Because this stuff is set apart. It's separate from all the rest. It's meant for this special purpose. That idea of being set apart for a special purpose is the very definition of holiness. Uh, And holiness is what we are called to as well as followers of Jesus Christ. We're to live lives that are set apart, distinct from the world around us, for the sake of the purposes of God. But here's the problem that we have. The problem is this, what does that holiness look like? What does it look like for you and I living in metaphorical exile, spiritual exile? What does it look like for you and I to live holy lives that bring honor to God, but also fulfill his purposes for us. And that's the problem that Daniel and his three friends have as well. Last week, we began a new sermon series in the book of Daniel. And I wonder if you remember our historical context. How do we get to Daniel chapter 1? The short version is this. The kingdom of Judah, God's people, have repeatedly broken their covenant with God. And as a result, God is faithful to his promise to bring judgment. And so he does. He brings judgment on Judah in the form of the enemy nation of Babylon, led by their king, Nebuchadnezzar. They come and uh, destroy Judah, destroy the capital city of Jerusalem, and they take in exile many of the inhabitants of that city. I want to show you a map I meant to show you last week just to give you a little glimpse of the scale of what we're talking about. Mediterranean Sea on your left, Egypt to the south. You can see Judah here in the left middle in the little red square. That's where the kingdom of Judah was. And the the entire shaded area, the yellowish area, that is the kingdom of Babylon at its apex. And so Nebuchadnezzar's armies destroy Judah and then march God's people to live in exile back in the kingdom of Babylon. From Judah to Babylon as the crow flies, maybe about 500 miles. But if you don't want to walk through a desert without any water, you take the long way, which is about 900 miles from Judah around to Babylon, modern-day Iraq. So this is where our four boys live their lives, ripped out of their homes and their families and their religion and their lives in Judah and marched to live the rest of their lives in exile in Babylon. These four boys, Daniel, Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah, are selected for a special training program, three years of training in which they're going to be prepared to serve the king. 
And the question these boys have is the same question we wrestle with this morning, is what does it look like to live a holy life in exile? They've lost so much. Families, homes, religion, names. They've lost so much. What can they hold to in terms of their faith distinctiveness? Now, when we approach that question, opinions vary widely on it. Some people will say, well, the type of holiness we should pursue is one that entirely separates us from the world. The world is just totally decayed and hopeless. It's time for Christians to retreat, shelter ourselves, and just wait on Jesus to come and split the sky open. Another extreme would say, no, if we pull out of the world, then we're on the wrong side of history. Rather, we should be enmeshed in the world, even to the point of being indistinguishable. But what I find is that many Christians, many thoughtful Christians, are trying to live in between the extremes on this issue. On the one hand, we want to hold to our distinctiveness as followers of Jesus, but on the other hand, we need to live and function in the world around us. So we know that a holy life is our answer, and our passage today is going to show us what that holy life looks like. So my goal today in our study is to show you the kind of holiness that should characterize Christians who live in a non-Christian place. And from our passage, I'm going to highlight three characteristics of holiness that you and I should pursue. And so I want you to follow along with me in your Bibles. Daniel chapter 1, we'll start in verse 8 and read to the end of the chapter. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. Yet he said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has signed your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So this passage gained popularity not too long ago thanks to a diet program that was published in Christian circles. And maybe you took part in that. No shame in that. I hope it was effective for you. But I want to make sure we understand on the outset, this is not a story about diets. 
There is no magic power in vegetables and water any more than there is magic power in wafer and wine. This is not a story about the power of food. It's a story about the power of God. And it informs the kind of holiness that you and I are to practice in the life God has given us. So what kind of holiness should we pursue? Let me share with you three characteristics. First of all, it should be holiness as an intentional pursuit. What kind of holiness should you and I pursue? It's holiness as an intentional pursuit. Verse 8 is the key verse that drives the action of this story. In verse 8, look at it with me. It says, Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine he drank, so he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. The word defile is used twice in that verse. Daniel wants to avoid defiling himself, so in essence what he wants to do in the positive is progress his holiness. Not to be defiled, but to be holy and to walk with God in the loyalty that he can. And so the way Daniel will pursue this holiness without a temple, without a priesthood, without a sacrificial system, the way he sees fit to not defile himself and instead pursue holiness is by taking control over what he eats. And so he says, I'm going to abstain from the king's food and the king's wine, and I'm just going to eat vegetables and drink water. But there's something about this that doesn't make total sense. Uh, It's a bit of a gray area. In fact, if you were to ask, why does Daniel make this choice? I mean, we know on the one hand, it's to promote his own holiness, but why this form of sanctification? It could have been for dietary reasons. Uh, The royal food may have included things that were off-limits Uh, to a faithful Jewish boy, Uh, perhaps pork, perhaps shellfish, any number of unkosher items. But that doesn't explain Daniel's rejection of wine. Wine was not banned from God's people. Uh, So there's something there that doesn't make total sense. It could have been a religious reason. Maybe some of the food was sacrificed to idols. But that could have been true of the vegetables as well. So we don't have a firm answer there. Maybe it's just a symbolic resistance against Babylon. Sharing the king's food was a token of dependence on the king and a sign of loyalty to him. But even Daniel's alternative diet would have been provided by the king. There's no way he gets out from Nebuchadnezzar's provisions. So even that doesn't make total sense. We may never know fully why Daniel chooses this alternative diet, but it could be perhaps that Daniel feels smothered by all things Babylon. Perhaps he feels like he's losing himself. And if he doesn't take a stand somewhere, uh, he's just going to evaporate, lose all of his identity, all of his distinctness. And so he had to draw the line somewhere in order to preserve his distinctiveness and to keep from being squeezed totally into Babylon's mold. Daniel teaches us at the very least that holiness is intentional. It doesn't happen by accident in the Christian's life. We have to make intentional choices that preserve us in our relationship with the Lord, that advance us in our Christ-likeness, and that distance us from our sin. And I don't want us to underestimate what a big deal this is. Look, Daniel is in exile in Babylon, and he chooses holiness. He could have done this. What God? 
I'm just an innocent boy, ripped from my family, ripped from my home, marched across the desert, and now I've got to live here and speak a different language and live a different life. What God are you talking about? He, his circumstances give him every reason in our logic to turn his back on God, but instead, what does Daniel do? He clings to him. He holds to him. He chooses holiness in this most unholy moment. Daniel teaches us that our holiness is not circumstantial. We don't choose holiness just because life is rosy and worry-free and then reject holiness whenever our situation becomes different. Suffering is never a reason for sin. Trials are never an excuse to turn from God. When we choose holiness in the midst of hardship, you know what we're going to find? We're going to find that God is already there. Holiness doesn't summons God. It doesn't call God to us. Rather, holiness opens our eyes to the presence of God, even in our most difficult situations. Where is God on display in these opening verses of our passage? Look at verse 9. God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. This guy who is King Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand man, big boss man, has kindness and compassion, a God-given, God-cultivated, from a God he does not know, compassion and kindness to Daniel and his friends. Two big words in verse 9, kindness, compassion. The Hebrew word for kindness, so that's translated kindness here, is the word chesed. It's a very important word in the Old Testament. And we've talked about it off and on, multiple times. It doesn't just mean kindness. It means loyal love, faithful love. It is the way God loves his people. That chief eunuch is given by God a God kind of love for Daniel. Kindness and compassion. Uh, that word compassion comes from the Hebrew word racham. And that word is used to describe the way a pregnant woman feels about the baby in her womb. The chief eunuch has chesed and racham for Daniel. He has a God type of love, a motherly compassion for Daniel, a gift that God gives. And Daniel, in his choice for holiness, finds God is already here. God is already active. God is giving me what I need to be able to grow and influence others and walk in holiness. So what does it look like for you and I to intentionally pursue holiness? What are the practical steps you and I can take to do this? Let me give you uh, two ways of thinking about it. First would be holiness in terms of spiritual formation, and the other would be in terms of spiritual action. Formation and action. When we talk about formation, what we're talking about is developing holiness through time with God. It's the way you and I develop it. We cultivate it like we are gardeners growing a garden of holiness. We are cultivating that garden through time with God. It's through the practice of spiritual disciplines. It's not a magic thing. It's just the regular disciplined intake and experience of God's Word. So on a regular basis, we are reading the Bible, and we are praying, and we are worshiping, and we are in community with other believers. 
Uh, and we are doing the types of things that help us grow spiritually in the Lord. Now, spiritual formation takes place in many different ways, but the one common denominator in all the spiritual formation activities is Bible intake. It's always centered on the Bible. In John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus prayed for you. And he prayed this. He said, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. Father, make them holy by the truth. Your word is the truth. Spiritual formation happens with our lives in orbit around the word of God. So if you want to choose holiness, it happens intentionally when you schedule and you make happen your regular, daily, beautiful, incredible time with the Lord. Your soul needs that. It's not just information, it's also in action. Intentional holiness means we are practicing holiness in our lived experiences so that our words and thoughts and actions reflect Christ in me. Our behavior is not dictated by our emotions or by our circumstances, but by Christ who died for me and rose again. We form holiness in us through our time with God. We live holiness in the lives he has given us. Holiness in formation and in action are two ways that we can be intentional in living like Christ. We need an intentional holiness. There's a second characteristic in this story of the holiness we must pursue, and that is holiness that is humbly subversive. It's a holiness that is humbly subversive. So I love how our story progresses. Daniel asks permission of the chief eunuch for an alternative diet. And look, Daniel's up front. He tells him that I, I want to do this so I won't be defiled. But the guard, the, the chief boss man says, no, I'm not going to do this. I have kindness and compassion for you, but if I give you just vegetables and water, our nutritional scientists tell us that you're just going to waste away. And then if you get sickly and look bad, King Nebuchadnezzar's going to have words for me and a sword. So no, I'm not going to do that. I love Daniel's humble response. He doesn't throw a fit. He doesn't get angry and demand what's his. But instead, in humility, he goes a different direction. Verse 12, he goes to the guard and he asks the guard a clever question. Please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink and then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. So the guard agrees, gives them this alternative diet for 10 days. And after 10 days, Daniel and his three friends look better and healthier than the other boys in their training program. Now, remember, Daniel's goal is not physical health. That's not what this story is about. Daniel's goal is spiritual health. And so to achieve that, remember, he's chosen not to defile himself with the king's food. He eats what seems to be an inferior diet, but the results are miraculous. In only 10 days, there's a noticeable difference between Daniel and the three friends and the rest of the guys in the group with them. So this story is not about the power of vegetables. It's about the power of God. Vegetables are great and excellent. You should eat your veggies. But you should also walk with God who gives these sorts of miraculous results to those who walk with him. I'm moved by Daniel's cleverness in this story. 
He's humble and he is subversive. He's humble in the way he handles the first no from the chief eunuch. He's humble in the way he uh, gives the option to the guard that's over them. But he's also subversive in that he crafts this 10-day test and puts the power, so to speak, in the guard's hands to evaluate. And in doing so, he completely undermines the program set up by King Nebuchadnezzar himself. Humble subversion is the way of every Christian. We are to be humble like Jesus, especially when we encounter resistance to our faith. Humility is lacking in so many public discourses today. Our leaders do not teach us humility. Not one. Jesus does. And so we're humble when we respond to resistance against our faith or against the way the Bible sees things when we respond in the way Christ responds. How did Christ respond to resistance? We're told he was silent, led like a lamb to the slaughter. Maybe there's a time for a righteous indignation that shows itself in table flipping, so to speak. But I think by and large, if we follow the way of our crucified Savior in humility and faith in our Heavenly Father, we're going to follow in the right way. Humility is what's called for from holy Christians in this day. And not just that, but also subversion. Subversion is simply status quo Christianity. You can't find a page in the New Testament where God's people are not being subversive in some way, whether against uh, the powers that are in place, be they government powers or religious powers, or just the sin and decay that's in the world. In simple, easy, quiet ways, God's people have always been a subversive people. So how do you practice humble subversion? There's any number of options available to you. Let me give you two options that might resonate. Uh, One is this, go to church. Don't you love it when you go to church just to be told to go to church? That's great, fantastic for all of us. Uh, Here's the deal. Being a part of a local church family, being a member of a church, is a tremendously humble and subversive act against the way things are around us. Uh, we live in a land in a time where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And so when we say, no, we're going to set aside this time to get together with our brothers and sisters. We're going to carve out time out of our schedule to gather around the word of God, to sing it, to pray it, to be moved by it, to study it. That is a hugely countercultural act. One writer described it this way. I love this quote. His name is N. Ducat, and this is what he says about um, our time in church being subversive. He says, Christians have dual citizenship, so we should celebrate our heavenly citizenship with other believers. It is a well-observed phenomenon that exiles are often more profoundly patriotic than those who have never left the mother country. St. Patrick's Day is celebrated with more enthusiasm in Boston than it ever is in Dublin. Exiles desire and need opportunities to celebrate and preserve their true identity. And so as citizens of heaven, we need to take every opportunity to gather with our fellow exiles so so that we can remind one another of home. So that's why we... 
That's why we carved this time out. That's why you drove so far this morning. That's why we tell coaches, hey, we've got some limits on what our family's going to do on Sunday mornings. That's why we tell our kids, we've got some limits on what our family's going to do on Sunday mornings. That's why we make this time a priority, not so we can earn God's favor, but because there's something special and unique, humbly subversive. When we gather together in the name of Jesus Christ and we sing songs that say, he's the king of kings, he's the Lord of lords, there is no other but Jesus Christ. So if you want to live a humbly subversive holiness, it's got to include being here with us. Let me give you another example that I hope will resonate with our teenagers. And I want to approach this one very carefully. Uh, Middle school and high school students in our public schools are going to have to regularly practice a humble subversion type of holiness. And one place we've seen this play out in our own family is regarding a practice implemented in our schools called mindfulness. Mindfulness is guided meditation that's meant to counteract stress created by school and life. Now, in my mind, if, if I see that uh, the workload I'm putting on students is creating too much stress and anxiety, then the answer should be less homework. Can I get an amen from any teenagers in the room? There you go. All right. Um, But instead, what our school systems have chosen to do is to implement mindfulness, guided meditation. We're going to stop, empty our minds, quiet ourselves, and be still for a period of time. Uh, Mindfulness meditation is rooted inescapably in Buddhist philosophy and practice. Cannot get around this. And the question that students and their families should consider is not, does it work, but should I participate? Now, if if you've participated in mindfulness, you're not a horrible person, you're not going to hell. Not a horrible thing. And you might even say, Cody, that's kind of a small, nitpicky thing to talk about. It might be. But remember, chapter one revolves around a dinner table, not a fiery furnace and not a lion's den, a dinner table. One writer said, beware the devil at the dinner table. Here's a place where our young people, where you, teenagers, may need to make a choice to hold to your Christian distinctiveness. And as an act of humble subversion, when everyone else stops and gets quiet to empty their minds, you would fill your mind with praise and prayer to the God of your salvation. Humble subversion. It's not a time for protest, turning tables upside down, lighting fire to the school and planning a a walkout. It's humble subversion. There's any number of places where you and I, adults, Teenagers might need to evaluate where we stake our claim for our distinctiveness in Jesus Christ. But Christian holiness that is humble and subversive is needed to counteract the chaos in the world around us. So holiness is intentional. It is humbly subversive. And the final type of holiness we need to pursue is a holiness that is influential. It's a holiness that's influential. So over the course of their three-year program, the four boys draw close to God and he draws close to them. They choose holiness in this small way, and God pours out gifts in abundance on them. In verse 11, we're told God gives them knowledge and understanding, and that Daniel understood visions and dreams of every kind. Look, that's going to be really important for chapter 2. But where do we see Daniel here in chapter 1 influencing others? Well, 
God gives Daniel, the three boys, a wisdom and ability that sets them apart. It impresses King Nebuchadnezzar, and they are appointed by him to serve the king. In all matters, he finds them ten times more capable than all of his magicians and mediums. Now, look, I I don't want to ruin the rest of the story, but their access to the king is huge. These guys are going to be given some of the most influential positions in Babylon, and their wisdom and leadership is going to influence countless lives in countless ways. They walk with God in holiness, and they're given a platform to influence others. And another glimpse of Daniel's influence on the lives of others is in verse 21, the very last verse of chapter 1. Look at it with me because it is insane. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Who was King Cyrus? He wasn't a king of Babylon. He was a king of Persia. And the kingdom of Persia is the kingdom that would defeat Babylon and take over after them. So Daniel, blessed by God, outlived the kingdom of Babylon. This is an atomic verse that shows us how unstoppable a holy influence can be on the world around us. From this one verse, we already know the rest of the story. Does Daniel survive? Is he going to make it? Yeah, we know. The end of chapter 1 ruins the whole thing for us, gives it all away. When we roll into the lion's den, we know he's going to be okay because we read chapter 1, verse 21. But how incredible is it that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but God's faithful servant outlasts them all. So a central tenet of holiness is that we are set apart for a reason. Holiness is not the end in itself. Holiness is an influencer. Oftentimes, people will talk about holiness as if it's something we need to protect and preserve, keep it locked away uh, so that the world can't muddy it up. But I think Scripture shows us something very different, that holiness is, in fact, very robust, and it is meant to shine the light of Christ into the darkness of the world around us. Not protected and preserved, but utilized for the sake of influencing others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't this what Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16? Let your light shine before others, that they may see what? They may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Let your light shine. Here's your holiness on display. As holiness has been formed in you and is now active in the way you live so that people will see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Holiness is an influencer. It advances the gospel of Jesus Christ. It takes enemy territory by force, not with guns and swords, but with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Souls are rescued and held by God. So when you choose holiness, when you choose holiness, you choose to be an influencer. There's an intimate connection between our holiness and our witness. They go hand in hand. It's not that the best witnesses are perfect people, but we are striving in holiness to walk with Jesus Christ and to live like him. And so you are a holy influencer in as much as you are a single adult who chooses to walk in holiness. You're a married couple who chooses to love each other in the way of Jesus Christ, humbly, 
sacrificially. You're an influencer as a holy retiree who chooses your to-, to use your time for kingdom purposes. You're an influencer when you take your money and you say, I'm going to make a faith promise to see the gospel go around the globe. Rather than just burning it for such pointless reasons, I'm going to make an eternal investment in the lives of people whose names I will never know, but that doesn't matter. They've got to hear the name of Jesus Christ. I want to make sure I fund that kind of work globally with the money God has given me. You're a holy influencer when you walk with Jesus Christ and let him guide your life. So we know that we should pursue holiness But what kind of holiness? That's what Daniel has shown us this morning. It's intentional, it's humbly subversive, and it's influential. That's the kind of holiness that should mark our lives as we live as exiles in this world. We don't retreat from the world. We don't become indistinguishable from the world. But we live for Christ and we influence lives with the gospel. So this is where you and I might get motivated to be like Daniel, pound our chests and say, I'm going to be Daniel, I'm going to do this thing. Let me just tell you, time and again in this study, what we're going to find is that, in truth, we are not Daniels. We are nameless other exiles who assimilated into Babylonian culture and abandoned God. The message of the Bible is not Be faithful to God and he'll be faithful to you. There's no spiritual quid pro quo happening here. But rather the story of the Bible is that a Savior has come to deliver faithless and compromised sinners like us. Our salvation rests not in our ability to be undefiled by the world, but rather on the pure and undefiled offering of Jesus Christ on the cross for the sake of our salvation. He's the holy one. He's the undefiled one. And when your trust is in him, the one who loves you and died and rose again, then that holiness becomes yours and your sin becomes his. So there's a world outside these doors that is waiting to sink its teeth into you. But here's what you know. Because of God's love for you and your choice to walk in holiness the world's bite is more like being gummed by a toothless infant. The world is not dangerous. You are dangerous as you walk in holiness and love souls that are precious to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we want to live holy lives and we need you to show us how. So thank you in Daniel's example this morning. Uh, we get a better understanding of what it means to live as exiles in a place where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Thank you for showing us the way that we can live a distinct Christian life and at the same time be influential towards the salvation of others. So help us in these endeavors to walk in your way, to speak your truth, and to love people in your name. God, give us boldness Not a boldness like Daniel, but a a boldness that comes from Jesus Christ. That we would live unashamedly, distinctly as your children. Father, don't let us ever be ashamed of whose name we bear, of the one who has saved us. 
but rather let us speak in confidence. The confidence that comes from the God who created all things, confidence from the God who has saved us. Give us that sort of eternal confidence to represent you and to walk with you in holiness. And God, I pray that a result of that life would be the gospel shared, the gospel heard, the gospel received, and lives transformed as they put their faith in you. Father, thank you for this life. Thank you that we get to be Christians today, here and now, representing you to a people that desperately need you. Give us urgency. Give us clarity. Lord Jesus, give us holiness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.